0: Vibrant 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 Music Teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. You're listening to the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton and today we're talking about practice mistakes and how students can avoid them. Hello beautiful teachers. So at the moment on the blog, we're focusing on practice, which I think is a great topic for early new year-ish, which is when we're publishing this episode, if you're listening to it when it comes out, or any fresh start time. And you can make any time of year really into a fresh start if you word it that way to parents and to students. Like, hey, it's the day after St. Patrick's Day. Now's a great time for a fresh walk at practice. So The new year is a natural one of those, but you can also rejig any time of year to feel like a fresh start. Now, today we're discussing some practice mistakes, mistakes that we've seen in our studios a lot and how we can avoid them. So the first one, the first mistake that I see come up a lot and lots of other teachers do as well is distractions, distractions in the practice room or around the practice room. A lot of students are aware that their phone is an obvious distraction if they have, you know, lots of notifications on and that kind of thing. And students are reasonably savvy about that now. I think more than, say, I was as a teenager when mobile phones were just normal at that stage. So I think they're a lot more savvy now about that kind of thing. But what they can overlook is other possible distractions in terms of the home setup. And this is often something parents can help with. So let's say their room where the piano is, is a kind of through room that'll happen a lot, especially in smaller homes where, yeah, space can be used in different ways. You'll kind of know what's a common home setup in your area architecture tends to be kind of localized in that way. So I'll be aware that in a lot of the homes around here, many, many of the homes around here happen to follow almost the same floor plan or original floor plan as my house before it was extended, which means that the living room acts as a kind of hallway because there is no hallway. Okay, so when you come in the door, there's a stairs and then there's a living room door on your left-hand side, and you need to go through that to get to the back of the house, to the kitchen, or extensions that most people have added on to these houses. Because of that, the piano is really likely to be in a room where people are walking through. So even if people are not actively in the living room, they might be walking in and out, and it might be distracting during the student's practice. There might be a TV nearby, or there might be an argument going on between siblings about using the TV And the piano, since they're in the same room, maybe the piano is facing a window or maybe the piano is in their bedroom. If it's a digital piano, a lot of students will have theirs in their bedroom. And there's just too much fun stuff in their bedroom because it kind of acts like the playroom as well. So it's where they have all their toys and maybe a computer staring at them. And there's just a lot of stuff going on. So while we can't re-architect our students' homes... I do think we can give them some tips about removing distractions from the piano area or finding ways of dampening those distractions during practice time, making practice a priority and making it clear that it's not happening in spite or it's not happening instead of you getting to watch TV. If you weren't doing the practice, you wouldn't be watching TV with your sibling instead. So trying to set things up in a way that makes that make sense. These are the kind of tips, by the way, things like this, a setup that I give to new parents in an email onboarding sequence. So that just means an email sequence, series of emails that goes out to parents automatically when they join my studio. So I just add them to that series once and those emails go out automatically spaced out over A week or fortnight kind of spacing between the emails so that they get these tips, not all in one go, but spaced out. Another good source for practice information for parents is my little book, which is called Practice Pie. A lot of teachers like to keep a few copies of that in their studio and loan it out to parents. I give a, new, a copy as part of the kind of welcome back pack that I give to students. So every parent, every new parent receives a copy when they join. OK, mistake number two is a lack of preparation or I would say a lack of organization, right? Many students or many parents, I would say, when they're thinking about practice, they think they just need to get their child to the piano. And while that is a great step, they also have to have the right stuff on hand. So having a setup at home where they have their piano bag that they take to lessons with all the stuff in it or their folder or any books. You'd be surprised how many families, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I think many families where. Maybe they didn't study music or they just haven't thought it through. They don't think about how many books their child is going to accumulate, how much stuff. So they might start with a system of just having the one book or the couple of books that you give them when they join and say a folder and that can just sit on the music stand, right? And then over the years, (laughs) they accumulate several different books and resources and different bits and pieces and it becomes just a big mess. Somewhere in the vicinity of the piano, if we're lucky, sometimes nowhere near the piano. I've had several kids actually, weirdly, in the last year, several of my students have had home renovations go on where they've had to move out of their house and they move back in. In the process, as you might imagine, everything gets muddled up and confused and lost, so those are the extreme examples. But even when students are reasonably organized, they need to make sure that they have a good system for having their stuff beside the piano, ready to go the right things so that they are referring to your notes. If you use a practice app like I do, I use our app Vivid Practice. So they need to have a device for their notes. Maybe you use a notebook or a folder or an app and they need to have whatever is relevant so that they actually look at your notes when they practice rather than just doing whatever. They also should have a pencil on the piano at all times. If it's possible to tie it to the piano somehow, I would recommend it so that they're ready to go. And a great little suggestion from Carmen who wrote the article about this is to have water on hand, something I haven't thought to say, but definitely as our students advance Having a bottle of water on hand is really important. It'll stop them from fatiguing really quickly in those longer practice sessions that they start to get into if they're advancing in levels. You know, even if it's only a half an hour practice session, having a sip of water every so often could actually make a big difference. Okay, let's talk about the actual practice now. The first mistake when it comes to their practice time, their active practice time is just taking on too much. I see this the most when students actually know what a piece is supposed to sound like. So, I love students to know what a piece is supposed to sound like, like to have an audio track to listen to or to already know the song that they're learning or whatever. That's awesome. But it can lead to them thinking, I'm supposed to play it like that right now. Have you ever had this happen? They have trouble differentiating between practice mode and I already know this mode. So performance mode, you might call it, although you don't have to be performing for anyone except maybe yourself and your teddy bears. But they often take that performance, the audio track they're listening to, and they start to do it, try to do it like that straight away. I was actually talking about this with a student just the other day, a new student to me who's a transfer student, and we started a new piece. Honestly, I think to a less experienced teacher what they were doing might have looked like bad reading skills you know you take on transfer students and you're trying to see can they really read were they learning things by rote or listening are their reading skills good etc and I think to my former self I'll say it that way I might have thought oh hey they aren't reading that well but actually what they were doing was trying to play it too perfect too soon not just too fast but like with Every single detail, and I love every single detail if it's very slow when you're just starting a piece, but they really were expecting I should be able to play this instantly. And then so that was leading to backtracking or missed notes and things, but it was actually just, hey, let's slow it down. Let's think about we are now practicing this piece for the first time ever. And that means it shouldn't sound like the recording we just heard. Trying to help students through this We can help them to break things down. Overall, we can demonstrate in lessons how exactly they should be practicing and be really explicit. Hey, that thing we just did where you played this one bar over and over and then we did the bar before it and after it or whatever you were doing, that is exactly how you should practice at home. So we're tackling small parts. Mistake number four is very related. Too fast, too soon. we can all commiserate with this one, can't we? So many, many students play too fast. And I believe it's for a variety of reasons. Some are just in a rush, but I think we can be too quick as teachers to assume that's what's happening, that they're being impatient. And it's often not the case, I think. Many students, especially my adult beginners, adults who didn't learn when they were a child, But even some younger students who don't have a really good ear, don't have a really good oral skills, they can tend to not be able to hear the piece at the slower tempo and recognize it as the piece that exists at the faster tempo. So they, in their slow practice, they can't hear what we hear, right? When we practice something slowly or we hear a student practice something slowly, we still hear the melody the tune the overall piece that we know we're trying to create we can hear it in the slow music but some students can't and so when students persist in playing things too fast sometimes i believe that's the issue that they can't hear it in the slow piece so it's they can't trust their ears to identify wrong notes or anything And it becomes just too difficult for them to do. Now, whatever the reason is for your student playing too fast, too quickly, (laughs) it takes a long time to fix, generally. We need to give them reasons why they have to play slower. So by reason, just something that forces them into it. It can be that you play alongside them, playing the exact same thing. You can be playing a teacher duet part. You could use a backing track. You could use a drumming track. You could use a metronome. I would suggest doing all of these things. And when you're asking a student to play slowly, if it's a younger student or even a teenager that can take a joke, then you can use animals to describe the speed you want. I will often say glacially slow and actually use my voice to show how slow I mean like glacial right stretching out the words so it's like I'm in slow motion to emphasize you can't play it slow enough right there's no speed at which you play it that I'm going to say that's too slow I mean there's not none but there's none that they're going to stick to that I'm going to find too slow so that and also demonstrating I find hugely important which sounds so simple but just A student starts a piece, right? And you say, hey, hang on, too fast. Start it again slower. And you might even say 50% of that speed or something like that, or sloth speed or snail speed. And they start again, it's still too fast. At that point, I say, hang on, here is what I call slow. And I played their piece the first couple of bars at the speed I'm actually expecting. Just so we're clear on what what we're actually expecting when we say slow. The third practice mistake we're covering today that comes up a lot is mindless repetitions. So we do need students to repeat. I'm going to expand this a little bit to say there's two issues here. There's the students who don't repeat at all. So they play things through once. Maybe they do it twice and they call that practice and it's just not enough. We don't want mindless repetitions, but we do need to, in our beginner students, build disability to repeat things at all not ability but tendency habit to repeat things at all if however that develops into mindless repetitions and I would say particularly repetitions without a gap between them so students when they just play it and 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 and there's no pause for reflection Have you ever met any of those students those students really need to build some new habits around practice Because they're really just bashing away at something and they're possibly getting more and more tense through those repetitions. And that can lead even in the worst cases to injuring themselves, hurting their hands or some other part of them because they're just not giving themselves any breathing room to think about their repetitions. So for those students, we need to start to introduce variety. You can use lots of the games in Vibrant Music Teaching Library for this, like lasagna and layers, mastery pathery, practice plays, practice hero, there's loads of them. If you use the Vivid Practice app, you can also encourage your students to use the different practice modes for this. So ones that introduce break times, like the Pomodoro or Focused modes, or to use the interleaved mode. To to encourage them to split up between different pieces and try to build it up that way. I think these practice modes are most suitable for students who are beyond the beginner level. But I would say there's very few students of mine anyway who are at the beginner level who do this mindless repetition to the point of counterproductiveness, right? Most of those students who start doing that are more intermediate and higher. So that's where the practice modes in vivid practice can be really useful. And finally, two kind of outside the box issues that can come up in practice that we need to help our students work away from. First one is a low tolerance for sounding messy. I think this can be really well demonstrated by you showing them a little bit of what your practice might look like or does look like at the moment. You could even video your actual practice and just show them a little clip of it. You don't want it to be long because you don't want to take up a huge amount of lesson time. But you want them to see what it sounds like when something is in progress, when something is messy. It should sound like chopping and changing and little bits over and over and then suddenly a different bit. It should sound like different rhythms that aren't even in the piece. It should sound kind of all over the place in a way with gaps in between for thinking. And so students need to have a frame of reference for what practice should sound like. It's not supposed to sound like a performance. And performances are what most of us have the best frame of reference for. They're what we've seen the most or heard the most on audio recordings. But we want our students to know what it sounds like to practice. And that if they want to just play their piece, that's fine. But let's define it. Let's say I'm going to play my piece now. Call your shot and say, I'm just going to play. Fine. If you say to yourself, I'm going to practice, then it should sound messy. It shouldn't sound polished. And the final practice mistake is one of my favorites, which is the mistake of not giving up. This is about the importance, really, of quitting. Quitting when you should. Some students stick at things much longer than they should. This is another place where an interleaved practice strategy can come in really useful So forcing yourself to switch to a new piece before the point where you're just hammering away at something that is not going to get solved in one section, one practice session. Or before the point where you're fatigued with something or before the point where you're frustrated with it. Did anyone else get super frustrated with their pieces as a teen? I think I could have been helped a lot by just taking a break when something wasn't working and coming back to it later, being forced somehow to take a break if I was using an app back then, if an app existed back then, because the point at which you're just trying to play something and then like hitting the piano, not physically hitting, but, you know, just like crashing your hand down on the keys in frustration or groaning or whatever is a point at which you should give up and come back later. So we would love to hear what the biggest practice mistakes are that you've seen with your students. Let us know. You can find me over on Instagram at keys or in our Facebook group, Vibrant Music Studio Teachers. I'll see you there. If you ever get overwhelmed by all the different teacher training options out there, vibrant music teaching is the place for you we nickname our members flamingos because they're masters of balancing all of the things and making it all work in a way that isn't overwhelming we have tools to help you do that inside vibrant music teaching so go to vmt.ninja and sign up today